Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace recently launched the latest version of their platform, Squarespace 7, which has a completely redesigned interface, integrations with Getty Images and Google Apps, 15 new templates, and an incredible feature called Cover Pages. Try the new Squarespace with a free trial at squarespace.com and enter offer code RIOT at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace. Start here. Go anywhere. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 101. We're recording on Thursday, April 9th. I'm Jeff O'Neill here with Rebecca Shinsky, and we're coming to you from bookriot.com. We're on the other side of 100. We're back to the news this week. We are, and it's so much news. Oh my it's like, goodness gravy. This is going to be the one week long episode of the Book Riot <laughs> podcast. Like literally there's we so could be much. here for a couple hours. There's and so much stuff to do. There's like big stuff and meaty stuff to chew on and some ridiculous funny things. I think my most delightful book story of the year so far is in is in this week's. Oh, I think, uh, I wonder if it's the same one. I, I bet I, it I think, is. I think it is. Uh, and we even to cut some good stuff. From we this did. Week. There, there were so hey, many links. It's such a big week. We had to cut a Jonathan Franzen story. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what else to say. Our Doesn't good get any buddy, bigger than that. Yeah. Jonathan Franzen. I mean, you know, if there had been a Dan Brown story this week, I don't know what we would have done because <sighs> I, we're not cutting that. We'd have to start a separate Dan Brown podcast. I think that would have been the only responsible thing to do. You know, somebody uh, on Twitter asked if we were going to send Dan Brown one of our uh, 100th episode Books Are In My Wheelhouse t-shirts, yeah. which is a thing that now That's I'm a good, of doing. It's called podcast bombing, where you send yes. people inside <laughs> jokes from podcasts Hi, they don't listen to. you don't know us, but we know you. And this <laughs> I mean, is I guess a shirt... I guess it has the like it says it basically means you like books the shirt says yeah. so it's not like completely abstruse but and uh, I would just have to write a note about how we really aren't creepy we just really like We're you and here's fans. a shirt for you to yeah. wear uh but Dan Brown is not the only one who can have that shirt oh, look you at see you. what I did there look at that. That's just a thing of If you would like to celebrate the fact that we survived 100 episodes uh, with a Books Are In My Wheelhouse Book Riot podcast inside joke t-shirt, you can buy those through April 15th. Uh, so limited time only. They're 16 bucks. It's about $20 after you pay for shipping. Teespring, T-E-E-Spring.com slash BR podcast. All right. I, we have no, we have nothing that really fits in this before we do our first sponsor. We usually like to do one a story, follow up, something like that. Mm-hmm. But all of these are too, like, we could do seriously 30 minutes on any of these stories. So let's go ahead and do our first sponsor, uh, Squarespace. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that makes it easy, simple, and dare I say fun, even, <laughs> to uh, to build your own beautiful, responsive website. So here's the deal. If you have ever tried to build your own website, you know unless you use Squarespace, that it's hard, man. It's mm-hmm. just hard to build a good website. So what Squarespace done is they put together a bunch of templates. And these templates, they're, they're, they look great out of the box, but they're also easy to customize. So you want to choose a different font, different colors, uh, d- arrange. There's this really nice drag and drop feature. We can arrange the content pieces in different ways that you want to. And it looks great on any 
device from your well, probably not Apple Watch yet, even though mm. no one has one. I, I haven't seen the but I but bet pretty at some much point, anything else. Pretty much anything else from a phone to a laptop to a tablet to a giant desktop. These templates are responsive, which means they make your site look great for whatever screen it's on. It knows. It knows what kind of browser um, situation your reader is looking at any given spot, and it prioritizes and reformats the web page to look great. So there's a bunch of different templates. There's also 24-7 live chat support, which is super great because even as easy as Squarespace is, the internet itself is not easy. And since there's a lot of things you can do to plug into Twitter streams, social media streams, pictures, uh, free e-commerce solution comes with each Squarespace subscription that's included in the $8 a month um, with it. Things are going to come up because you're going to try to do something that's important to you and there may be some problem that you have. And that's why there's great live chat support. When we were doing our own sites back in the day, we did not have live chat support. Oh, man, I so could have used it. (laughs) (laughs) Just even for fun. You know, you're working on your website 11 p.m. on a Friday night. Maybe you just need some backup there. So here's what you can do. For 10% off your purchase, go to squarespace.com and use offer code. Oh, I lost my offer code. Do you remember what it is? Oh, no. I'm looking at the wrong thing. Oh, sorry. Wrong notes? Wrong oh, notes. Oh, no. Uh, hold on. I'll, I'll come back to that. If you look for that for real, real quick, I'll do the rest of the deal. You'll get 10% off. And if you sign up for a whole year, you get your own domain name. So if you need um, jonathanfransandlovesbirds.org, you can find that. Uh, if you really need uh, dbrizzleforrizzle.com, you could find that. Whatever it is that's available. And there's all these new domain names they have available. Have you looked at some of these domain names like .coffee and dot .ninja. .ninja and .omg? Um, you know, probably you can find – I was – you know, it's always a bad sign when Jeff is Googling uh, uh, available domains on a Saturday <laughs> night as I was doing the other night. A it's offer code idea. – sorry, oh, it's offer code Riot. Right. I couldn't remember if his book writer is right. So, yeah, squarespace.com, use offer code Riot, get 10% off. That lets you know – that lets them know that you came from the show, you heard the ads, that the ads are worth sponsoring, keeps everything going, and it gets you that little deal there too. So thanks so much to Squarespace for sponsoring the Book Riot podcast. Okay. Well, so many things happened this week. I don't uh, even know where to start. Well, let's start with an ongoing story. And that is the ongoing publishers versus Amazon story. Mm -hmm. We don't really have, there's not really too much to say about this, except there's, there's, there's a trouble brewing. Yeah. This feels like so far, just like the next second or third or fifth verse, same as the first. Yes. Uh, but different publisher, because um, we've seen this with Hachette, Hachette, and we saw it to a smaller degree with Simon & Schuster. Like, that didn't last as long. Yeah. Uh, but HarperCollins' agreement with Amazon is about to expire, and HarperCollins is refusing to sign the new agreement with the new terms that Amazon is mm-hmm. asking. And the little birdies are saying that it's the same deal that SNS and Hachette signed. Mm-hmm. So they want Mo. Mo Mo. They want Mo Mo. And it makes a little bit of sense because we've seen HarperCollins do some things over the last six to 12 months that maybe they've been getting ready for this a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, they develop principally among them, I don't know if, what you think about this too, that they have their own e-retail store. You can buy books directly through HarperCollins.com. So if people are looking for, you know, and presumably if you were going to mm-hmm. pull your books from Amazon, you could say, yeah, just go buy them on our website. Well, and they, um, that... I think I tested out that app when they 
or and the the store when yeah. they launched it and at the at the time of launch and I think still currently if you buy an ebook through the HarperCollins ebook store you also can only read it in the proprietary yeah. HarperCollins reading app which we don't love. Don't love. Um, don't but love. that doesn't have to be permanent. Like no, I, I, no. HarperCollins, we've seen be sort of the first mover on a lot of, or one of the first movers on a lot of the forward-thinking yeah. digital e-reading stuff. Um, they've, you know, they were one of the first to join Scribd and Oyster and to be checking out subscriptions. They're doing all kinds of interesting things, and uh, that's a smart move, especially if you're preparing to try to give Amazon the middle finger, which it looks like maybe they yeah. are. You're going to try to put um, the screws to them a little bit. Yeah. And, you know, someone that I follow on Twitter this morning, his name's Mark Ferguson, um, used to work for HarperCollins and now is an author. And we talked about his book a few weeks ago, mm-hmm. um, The Lost Boy Symphony. But anyway, he was talking about how this is really interesting timing for HarperCollins because HarperCollins just last month announced like the biggest book event of the decade, if not the century, with this Harper Lee book that will be coming yeah. out in the summer and there were a bit like floppity jillion copies of it pre-ordered already like we were speculating that they would sell out the pre-order um, mm-hmm. or they would sell out the first run of like a million copies um, before the book were, was even in stores and so they m- could possibly be dangling that over Amazon we're going to release the biggest book of the decade and we can do it without you yep and uh <laughs> the other thing um, that that HarperCollins has is it's part of um, News Corp. Mm-hmm. The, News Corp is the parent company, and there are other assets there Amazon might need to worry about if they try to give HarperCollins too much of the the, the job or the business here because they've got, you know, uh, you may not know this, um, but Dow Jones and Company is part of News Corp, and they publish this little thing called the Wall Street Journal, mm-hmm. um, some Australian assets, uh, the New York Post. Um, some digital advertising companies, News America Marketing, Amplify Education, which is a digital education company, uh, all these things, um, you know. And also Rupert Murdoch is the head of News Corp and also the head of Fox, which includes 21st Century Fox. So while they're not the same company, the same dude is at the head of them. And so presumably if you piss off Murdoch and HarperCollins negotiations, he might also saber rattle another location. So uh, there's more chess pieces on the board with HarperCollins than there were for Hachette, which was a part of a big conglomerate but didn't have as many direct assets that they could also sort of threaten with. Um, yeah, and I think SNS we talk- has, has a, a daughter corporation of uh, CBS, mm-hmm. so there's also that there to think about as well. So th- that's another piece of the puzzle. Yeah, we talked at one point about what would happen if Random House were in this position yeah. with Amazon and sort of wishing that Amazon and uh, – or sorry, that Penguin and Random House would – would be the ones like they produce 50% more than 50% of the books that come out in a year. And so if they left Amazon and wanted to roll their own, they probably could. Um, It doesn't look to me like Penguin Random House is gutsy enough Mm-hmm. To do that, they just aren't trying nearly as many things as HarperCollins is. They're trying stuff, but HarperCollins has been, you know, way out in front. Like it's just become when there's a new thing, we're like, oh well, HarperCollins will be the first one on mm-hmm. the list because they're doing this thing, and uh, it'll be interesting to see if it's HarperCollins that goes for it. Um, at, at some point, somebody is going to not agree to Amazon's something in a permanent, in a much, yeah. in a more permanent way, at least. And I don't know, I, I want to see that 
I'm just curious. I want to see that happen. Mm -hmm. Uh, Anyway, so that's that's maybe going to happen. We don't know uh, what's going to go on there. But I wouldn't be surprised if, uh, you know, come who knows, probably. I mean, I'm I'm guessing that it's like April 15, May 1. One of these Mm -hmm. days is when the contract is up before hearing about it already. Uh, so, so we'll see. So that, that's something we're going to, we're going to track. Um, Mm -hmm. all right. What's next? Yeah, let's go. Well, since we were talking about online ebook stuff and HarperCollins, Oyster, uh, which is an ebook subscription service uh, that we've talked about on the show before, and they have sponsored some episodes in the past. So full disclosure, disclosure, whatever whatever that means Uh, to you. They have, they're going in a different direction than we've seen a subscription service go so far. And they launched an ebook store yesterday. Yeah. Uh, so now when you log into your Oyster account, which is nine ninety five a month for unlimited access to all the, the ebooks that they have, you can read those, but you can also browse titles that aren't available in their unlimited service, including like everything from Penguin and Random House. Um, Oyster worked with all of the major publishers and a bunch of small publishers yep. um, for this store. Um, Penguin Random House has not been participating in any of the subscription ebook services. And we, have said they wouldn't about that. publicly. Yeah, they've said never. Yeah, uh, which. It's a long we time. have all kinds of thoughts about that, but <laughs> other stories. So Oyster has launched this now, and you can uh, you can buy books through them. They have deals. Uh, they have there's like a section where you can sort the Oyster store by um, ebook price, uh, and then you can also see what's what the free ebooks are, what's available in their um, in their subs- unlimited subscription service, and mm-hmm. then what you can buy things for. I'm really interested. Like so far the um, the deals have been, you know, comparable to deals that I see on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and the iBook store. Um, but the like the regular ebook prices uh, aren't very exciting. Mm. Um, but primarily, I guess, because ebooks are, especially for front list, tend to still be more expensive. But I was I was seeing like an eighteen ninety nine ebook of a book that's freshly out yeah. in hardcover. Yeah, um, I don't know. It's going to be interesting. Like. I've been loyal to Kobo because I've loved that some of my for buying e-book, ebooks, right? Yeah, 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 for buying ebooks. I use um, subscription services for a lot of my e-reading, um, but I've been loyal to Kobo for buying ebooks because I've loved knowing that like a little bit of every purchase has gone to a bookstore that I love and mm-hmm. want to support in that way. But I I might be swayed to throw some of my ebook buying dollars somewhere else um, if Oyster has good prices uh, or if they're able to get like cool exclusive deals or something. Um, yeah, we, the, we were talking about a lot, uh, uh, both of us on Twitter yeah. yesterday, then in, our, in the book riot back channel stuff, just sort of puzzling it out and why are they doing this and is this interesting or not? I guess if you're a regular Oyster user, it's a nice perk, right? Mm-hmm. Because you search for, you know, you don't, I think most readers, even serious ones, like the kinds of people that use Oyster, don't necessarily know what publishers publish the authors and books they're looking for. So say you punch in uh, uh, Beloved by Toni Morrison, right? right? It doesn't If you're just using Oyster, you get no result or maybe they recommend something like it, but it's not it. Here, at least, you get the options like, well, it's not in your subscription, but you could buy it right here, right mm-hmm. now and just, just pick it up. So they're capturing, I guess, some of that purchase intent maybe – from their existing customers, I don't think it's enough to convert anyone that's not already using Oyster. Yeah, I don't think this is going to, I don't think it's a, I think you were asking, is this like a Trojan horse for something? And I don't think that it is. Like if you're not already using Oyster so far, there's no incentive to start buying your books at Oyster now, Mm -hmm. just because you can, Um, you know, we know readers have 
a lot of places they can buy books and it's the buying patterns are very established and most people who are e-reading are buying from Amazon and this is not I don't think going to lure any of those people away. But if you're using Oyster already, it it is an interesting Mm -hmm. add on. The downside is that you can't do purchases in the app because it's an iOS device. This is one of the reasons most of my eBooks are through iBooks, frankly, because I just pop right there. Which like, uh, right, if you read on an Apple device and you're not reading in iBooks, you've experienced this problem with all of it. Like I have to go on my laptop to Kobo um, to buy books and then they show up on my Apple central. devices. Which is bummer central. Continues yeah, to be bummer central for Audible and whatever. Like, it's, it's just so all, bummer central. And so when Comixology went to Amazon and yeah. they took in-app purchase out, it's just yeah. like, it's, I don't know what you could do on Android. Can you buy, a, in Android, can you buy right there? I don't know what the rules are, I, I have to say. It is a total... Bummer that that's the way that it works, but it's not any more severe of a bummer for Oyster than it is for any other, no, you know, no. ebook well, purchasing except, platform. Except first, you know, iBooks yeah. or something like that. Um, but they do have, I think Oyster has great discovery tools um, and you can scroll and build giant reading lists. And so now you'll be able to see what you can, all the books that are in the subscription service yeah. have like a little banner across them uh, that you can see on the cover when you're scrolling. And then if it doesn't have a banner, you know, that's something that you would have to buy. And there, mm-hmm. there's some filters where you can like search for, you know, books about dragons and only see the ones that are in the unlimited offering or only see the ones in the store or both. Um, so there's lots of choices. It, it's interesting to see them do this. Um, yeah, I, it's just interesting. I don't know that I would have guessed that this was going to be their next move. No, um, me neither. Uh, I was trying to think about, is this a, is this a, do you make this move out of position of strength or weakness, right? Mm. Most, most businesses do one out of two, you know, they're, they're trying to grow something or, And they're doing it because they think they can double down on a strength or enter a new market because of whatever reasons, or they're trying to figure out something that works. Um, And the only way, again, I said this on Twitter yesterday, too, that it's not a great sign for me that they're not talking about subscriber numbers. Usually a startup Mm -hmm. that has a bunch of subscribers, like you hear about that, like you hear about big, exciting companies that they've got X number of uniques a month or something, something like that. There's a, they, now, it doesn't mean it's necessarily a bad sign. They could be doing it for competitive reasons. Maybe in this great script versus Oyster War, the other one doesn't really want to let the other one know sort of <laughs> how many they have or, you know, make people – anyway, there could be reasons that the numbers are good and they're not telling us. But I think it's probably unlikely. And they did release one stat I thought was interesting, Oyster, in this round of press releases that was embargoed until yesterday, blah, blah, blah. And that is – I said Oyster users are reading 100 million pages a month. Wow. Which seems like a lot, right? Mm-hmm. Well, then I started, it's like, well, can I make a guess about how many, can I make a guess from that about how many subscribers they might have? Ah, okay. Right? Because mm-hmm. they can't, uh, uh, you're not reading a million pages a month, right? No. And I don't think the average reader is reading 10 pages a month. So let's say the average book is 300 pages and the average Oyster user reads one book a month. Those are just okay. assumptions. I have no idea if they're sure. right. We don't know anything. But that's, We're, you know, that's not unreasonable, right? For like hand-waving yeah, guess hand-waving, math, it's magic, not Yeah, hand-waving magic, magical thinking. Here we yeah. go. This is going to be bang on right is what I'm trying to say here. <laughs> uh, so if you, each user averages 300 pages a month, you know, some a lot more, some a lot less, but it comes out to average, at 100 million pages, that is uh, 33,000 subscribers a month at 300 okay. pages. Now, I think it's more than that, probably, because we saw mm-hmm. some numbers out of Scribd, which like, you know, there are people, Scribd was saying their users are reading a lot more 
that way. So if you use those numbers, which might be two to three books a month, then you're really looking at something like eight to 12,000 subscribers. Yeah. And boy, that doesn't, that doesn't mean to, that doesn't sound great to me. Does it to you? No, it doesn't. Um, I think the first time that we, the first and only time that we saw numbers out of Oyster was like not too far after their launch. And it was something like, you know, they, they had broken 5,000 monthly subscribers. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we haven't seen numbers we haven't seen real numbers from Scribd. I remember there was a TechCrunch piece that we talked about on the show several months ago where Scribd said something that was like an astronomical number of global users. Yeah. Um, and we were parsing all the different ways that people can use Scribd. Yes, because Scribd is more than a subscription. Right, that aren't service, the ebook yeah. subscription and that they hadn't broken out what that looks like. Like publishers use Scribd to post excerpts of books and then they use those excerpts as landing pages from their banner ads. Yeah, some ads, of the ads know, like, that we run on the yeah. site go to Scribd. Right, it says, you know, it has like the cover of the book and it says click here to start reading or click here for an excerpt and that no. takes you to a Scribd page and writers use it to post things and, uh, and there are all kinds of uses for Scribd that aren't their subscription service. And I remember we were kind of, we were like, well, this is hand-waving also because you're not they're also not revealing right uh, their they're, they're not revealing different numbers numbers yeah. yeah I wonder for oyster if this was a move towards establishing relationships with the publishers that they weren't going to be able to work mm. with if they stuck to the subscription only model and maybe in that way it's a Trojan horse or at least like a foot in the door effort um, to yeah, you know, that makes to, sense to, me. to work with penguin random house and then promote the hell out of it and hope that people buy enough books that they can then go to Penguin Random House and say, look at all of these books that you've sold because of Oyster users. These people are are into your titles. Maybe you want to start trying just a few of them in the subscription service. Yeah, right. There's a lot of people looking for your books. Yeah. And they're not buying them, but if they were in the subscription, you'd get X percentage of the sale price. You know, a thousand people searched for Beloved this year, and of those thousand, this many of them bought it. And we, based on whatever magical math we're doing, we think that if, you know, 12 of them bought it, then 75 of them would have read it or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like I'm just I'm making up numbers. Um, but they could do some guessing about if this many people are willing to invest the dollars just to read your title, then this many more people would have read your title if it had just been in the unlimited and you would have gotten paid for those reads. Because um, Oyster and Scribd both, I pay the publisher after the reader read, like consumes like the first 10%, 10% of the book. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah. Anyway, it's interesting. It's unexpected. Yeah, you know, I was saying to Clint yesterday. It's like you know, I, you know, Netflix is the it is the the example company in any media yeah. subscription, and so it's Netflix for books or video games or even Legos and stuff like that. Now you can get. And I was like, if it was really a good idea, don't you think Netflix would have done it? You know, I'm not, I don't. Mm. I, I kind of don't like that kind of reasoning, but yeah, Netflix easily could be selling movies mm-hmm. through its app, right? You know, through on your phone. It's like, yeah, Avengers isn't available right now, but buy it right now for sure five and a half bucks. And you know, people would. The other thing about buying books through Oyster or Netflix, for that matter, is like I'm assuming they're DRM'd. Can you only read them on Oyster? I don't know. Because if that's the case, I wouldn't be buying ebooks. Because I, yeah, I don't that's know. A good point. They're 18 months old. Like, who knows if they're going to be around? Right. I have a pretty good sense that Apple and Amazon yeah. and Google are going to be around. So even though I don't love DRM, at least I'll know I'll have some way of reading them with Oyster. We'll I mean, have to do our stage, homework and find out. Yeah. I bet we can find out about that. Because I didn't see that in any, in any of the pre- 
press releases. And I don't I currently either. have an Oyster actually, subscription, yeah, so I didn't first, um, bop in there to take a look. I will have to check. And if any of you readers try this out and you run into any th- – or listener, excuse me, mixing yeah. media um, <laughs> or checking out Oyster and try buying stuff, let us know what you see or find out. And we can, sure like to talk about a reporter to let other – Everybody else know about it, so that's that's interesting uh, for sure. Yeah. Other interesting thing. Go to the most delightful bookstore. Yeah, let's go. <laughs> let's go to it. Uh, let's go to this. I am unreasonably entertained by this story. Uh, I guess so. I, we're both talking about Rushdie, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, we are. So Salman Rushdie uh, came out a few days ago that um, he has been reviewing and rating. I guess just rating books on Goodreads. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he Doesn't hasn't been writing rate. reviews. Uh, and. I don't know why this came out, but someone came across his, his his profile and saw that he was rating stuff kind of surprisingly, like three stars to kill a mockingbird or Kingsless Amos got one star for Lucky Jim. Uh, and I guess some people on Goodreads started questioning his judgment, but it turns out he thought the ratings were private. <laughs> it's so great. And he you... responded saying, I'm so clumsy in this new world of social media. Sometimes I thought these rankings were private thing designed to tell the site what sort of book to recommend to me or not to recommend. Turns out they are public, stupid me. Well, I don't like the work of King, Kingsley Amos. There it is. <laughs> and I don't have to explain or justify. It's allowed. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> it's so I love awesome. It. Salman Rushdie's don't care juice is so strong. Yeah. He's like, well, I don't like Kingsley Amos. I don't have to tell you why. I there think he it has is. don't care blood. It just like he, throws through his veins. You know he does. It's so great. I also loved like he's Salman Rushdie's kind of great on Twitter. So yes, it seems a little is. possibly disingenuous to me that he's doing the like, I'm so clumsy in this new world sometimes. Like he's mm. figured out Twitter. But the thing that's really interesting to me is like, why is Salman Rushdie using Goodreads to get book recommendations? That's the like, I was thinking. I don't care that he gave three stars to, to kill a mockingbird. Frankly, I'm no. not surprised that he doesn't really. <laughs> particularly yeah. like to kill Mockingbird. I don't care about that in the least, but w- like, why uh, yeah. did he, why does Salman Rushdie have a Goodreads account in the first place? I thought these rankings were private thing designed to tell us that was sort of book direct. Don't you think he could get some recs from somebody? Right. Like, is, is Salman Rushdie sitting around at 1am, like while we're poking around on our Squarespace accounts, he's like, I, I really need something to read yeah, and nobody like ever talks to the me about books. books. Sidebar and the, I so don't get it. I'll just jump into this <laughs> pool with 25 million people and trust them to recommend or stuff to me. Or maybe he was just farting around with it. You know, he's maybe like trying so. it out. What what happens if I rate a few books? Right. What does it give me? It doesn't, I didn't look at his profile, I have to this say. Like, so I, I want him to continue this. Like oh. now that he knows it's public, I want him to just continue it and keep rating things and then do it as like performance art of like, here are the things that Goodreads has recommended to me based on not really liking To Kill yeah. a Mockingbird and really not liking Lucky Jim. And... I'm going to read some of those and write about them now. <laughs> it's it's just Rushdie, so beautiful. It's he's just a such beta a tester like 10 story. years late. It's just such a delight. Like the And and you can imagine so many other authors oh. spinning this in such the wrong way, you know, of like backpedaling about how they like, you know, the Goodreads version of like, I didn't send that DM with my private parts in it. I got hacked. Like you can imagine people being embarrassed about their ratings or saying that like, <laughs> yeah, you know, they're yeah. Kids set up the account or someone set up the account in their name. Like people could make up all sorts of explanations for why they were giving low ratings to beloved books. And like we know better than anybody on the Internet, probably what happens when you say you don't (laughs) love a beloved book because it happens to our contributors sometimes. Also, bad job. Goodreads commenters that questioned his judgment. Bad job. (laughs) Bad job. 
He can like what books he wants to like. He can totally like what books no. he likes, you know. And I think that's a really great, interesting thing too. Is Rushdie is seen as a you know a very literary, yeah. like highbrow writer, and for him to be like, well, I can like whatever I like. It doesn't matter. I don't have to explain it to you. I don't have to justify it. It's allowed. There it is. Lucky Jim gets one star. Um, is a cool example to yes. set for readers. Very cool. You know? And of all the people not to care, I mean, when you've had a, a death sentence on your head for you right. know, several decades, I don't think Goodreads trolls are going to bother you too. Yeah, you, this ranks pretty Flummoxing low. is not in his game um, at this point. Yeah, I, w- I would guess he's pretty unflappable. But yeah. I just, I loved everything about how the story <laughs> came out and what the story was. I love that he's was. using it. I love that he didn't know. I love we get it. I love his response. It's, it's and everything so great. is great. It's all so perfect. Yeah. This is this is this is what we internet for to get stuff like this. Um so I'm if you go search for I don't know, his profile I'm sure is still public unless he took oh, it down. Probably I haven't gone and looked at it. I haven't gone and looked at it. But we know uh, a lot of y'all are on Goodreads. Yeah. So go. Five, and five stars to Great Gatsby from uh, Mr. Rushdie. Okay. Well and he Wong and I can and, still be friends yeah. then. Okay. Uh, let's not go to a delightful story. Mm. Actually, two not just going to make some sounds a for a row. second. This is not something we know a lot about the mm-hmm. Hugo Awards, which yeah. are um, awards for science fiction and fantasy, um, with an odd voting structure. Um, which basically, if you are a supporter and you pay forty bucks, you get the right to vote. Is that right? Yeah. Yes. Um, and then there's maybe another level where you can nominate for voting. Mm-hmm. So it's it's both open and closed. It's basically a poll tax um, to to be a member of this particular kind of award. And over the last several years, the Hugo Awards, the nominations, and the winners, frankly, have become more diverse. Um, I don't believe there's been sort of an official group championing the the increased diversity of the nominations and the winners. But amongst people voting and nominating, um, making sure that diverse stories and writers and authors are included has been at least a unspoken priority. Does that seem fair to you, yeah, what I'm describing? How it, it does seem fair. We've been the, like publishing in general and the literary internet has been having this conversation about diversity. And it's a thing that readers have been paying more attention to and people who care about books and you care about books and reading if you're paying 40 bucks or more to join an organization yeah. so that you can nominate and vote for books that you love. And and there's been a real emphasis, I think, in this in the group of Hugo participants on uh, highlighting the great work that's being done by a f- like the full spectrum of writers, not just shining the spotlight on the same writers that always get the spotlight. Yeah. And so last year was kind of a watershed year for the awards and basically swept by younger writers that are women, people of color. Um, and in response, because of course, someone has to have a response, um, a group called Sad Puppies. Which, Perfect. He couldn't make it up. Like the Onion couldn't do this anymore. Right. Uh, put together and orchestrated a campaign to get their nominees uh, nominated. And mm-hmm. in pretty much every co- category other than Best Novel came exclusively from this effort from Sad Puppies, organized by Brad R. Torgensen and Larry Correa. Last year, Correa had organized a campaign which successfully placed one from one uh, one nominee in each of the categories from their sort of list of approved whatevers. Mm-hmm. So, um, 
and yeah. the nominees this year are all messed up again, or mm-hmm. they're all they're they're all horrible, significantly influenced by this campaign. And the pieces that we've been reading, and one of our contributors, Chris Arnone, wrote did a, a bunch very of, nice piece. Yeah, did a bunch of reading too. for it and a bunch of research and. Um, the overarching theme seems to be that the Hugo Awards have always had this element of campaigning um, that because, you know, people can reach out to their fans and say, hey, if you want me to win this award, then please register and vote so that you can vote for me. Um, writers, big and small, have been doing that for a long time in the Hugos. So the notion of campaigning is not new. And it sounds like factions, you know, have this is not the first time that p- factions have popped up uh, within Hugo voting and nominating. But this response was, you know, last year, there was a really great diverse group of winners. And uh, Torgerson and Correa this year wrote about that, how this rarefied insular group of writers were promoting an agenda by nominating works by women and people of color. And they felt that their chances of being recognized and sat the the members of sad puppies, which God, it's just so perfect. Um, (laughs) chances of being recognized were threatened by the agenda of this other group. Mm -hmm. And so they, you know, they have organized this campaign um, to get essentially white people recognized again. White dudes, Um, especially. And the, the like racist factions of the internet have Mm -hmm. come out to support them, which I I tend to think like if the people, if the trolls are coming out to support the thing that you're doing, whether you intended or not to be on the same side as the trolls, uh, first of all, that's a pretty foreseeable consequence. And so it's like a failure of imagination that those people aren't that if you don't Mm -hmm. think that those people are going to show up and be on your side, but you should maybe interrogate where you're standing on things. If it's like, if it's the people who hate women coming out to support the thing that you're doing or the people who, you know, hate people of color coming out to support the thing that you do, you might not be working from a place of active hate, but you're also maybe not working from a place of active good. And if the response to seeing the awards in your field being more diversified is not, wow, this is great because this field is diverse and the awards are the best and most effective when we have the widest possible scope of nominees and winners. But now I'm scared that I won't get recognition. That's also worthy of interrogation. The cover of it seems to be that uh, these these guys think that the awards it's have become too literary and not popular enough. Like the line, there's, mm-hmm. there's a lot of lines like, you know, mm-hmm. while the wider world is out gobbling of Avengers, the Hugos are recognizing these sort of more literary works that are political in nature and blah, blah, blah. Um, which I think is just sort of bogus, like whatever, like, okay, so there's people like the Avengers. That doesn't mean the Avengers won the Academy Award, right? That's not how this works right. necessarily. It's just an odd thing. And I don't know. I guess I'm not surprised by it, to be honest. I think it sucks. Um, It should be said, just for even sake of discussion, that they didn't do anything outside the spirit or rather the letter of Mm -hmm. the Hugo um, process. Um, There's nothing that says you can't organize a campaign. They paid their money and they did their thing. So that means that the Hugos now have a problem because these people Mm -hmm. exist. And I don't think anyone's going to change their mind. 
And it's going to become, if he goes, don't do something about it, much more like a political campaign Mm -hmm. where there are sides that have different agendas and things they care about and they're going to organize their people in different ways. And And you know that the people who care about other things than these sad puppies do, they're going to organize something of their own and and do something next year. And there is that unintended but real consequence of... the people who just exist on the internet to, you know, fight against diversity yep. are going to show up on your side and and are going to, you know, spend money and register to vote and skew the results because um, that's a thing that people devote time and thought yep. to doing now. And so, yeah, if you're the Hugos, you have a big problem. Um we saw this, I was talking, I think, on the back channel. We saw something similar, um, but not in the book world at the end of the year last year when um, Time Magazine does a, th- a poll ev- at the end of every year about, like, which word should we outlaw right. next year? Like, you know, what's the thing you're tired of hearing about? And it's usually pop culture words, you or know, like... slang tw- or something right, like that. You, you know, know, like twerking or whatever. Uh, and feminist was one of the words on the list. And, like, you know, they had an explanation for why... That was, and it wasn't that they hated feminism. It was that they thought too many people misused it, and so we needed a, a new term. But you know, like the men's rights <sighs> activists organized campaigns to go and vote for so it. So many fedoras, and the, so so their show title, <laughs> um, and like. And it was in the lead of the vote for a long time. And notably, I don't recall ever seeing the results of the vote. Like, I don't oh, think time ever publicized good point. I never, the results I didn't of notice the vote. Either. Because how are you going to be like, oh, right, we got trolled mm. because we didn't anticipate that we were going to get trolled if we put this word on our poll. And so now we have these results that are the results of trolling and not of like what the Internet's democratic process Uh so they just kind of it just faded away yeah. because they didn't want to go with that. And I'm afraid that the same thing might be happening to the Hugos and to other you know, other things that can be campaigned and voted for online, because it's not just limited to the community that really cares about that thing right. anymore. Your vote will not necessarily reflect like the results are not necessarily going to reflect the real values and priorities of your community if or other groups with other priorities and agendas come in to support your side to make their point. Or how about this? Maybe your community doesn't have a monolithic agenda or yeah. taste. I mean, that's the other thing. Like, do you want your award to be divisive? Like, what do you want to do with the – I mean, that's – if I'm – I don't know who's in charge of Hugo. I know I have no idea how it's set up, like, in, from an administrative point of view. But presumably someone has the power to use the brand and the name and however they want to do it. Like, if you're the Hugo, what do you want the award to be? Right. Because these days in our internet days of like getting a popular vote, I think most of the time you're going to be sort of upset with your result, to be honest. Mm-hmm. I, I think like they're going to get – they're going to have award discussions and nominees and winners that look like unmoderated comments at the bottom of websites. Yep. Like that's what it's going to look like because it just doesn't work because you're going to have people that have a lot of energy and they can use it in ways that don't reflect well on you or the people you think you're representing or want to participate in your organization doing stuff that you don't want. And that's why, you know, I'm surprised a little bit that Goodreads hasn't had this problem. Maybe it's just they're so big that yeah, a thousand people can't get into it. Where the Hugo nominations, there were like a thousand per category. So Yeah, Goodreads is so big. And and when we ch- when we talk about the results of the Goodreads Reader's Choice Awards at the end of every year, you can point to a few of those that are – undoubtedly affected by how large the author's online mm-hmm. following is. But also the nominations are editorial. 
Right. And so the, the winners, they, 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 they winnow it down, but they don't let the nomination. Yeah, the right. Goodreads makes that first makes that first cut. It's yeah. not just open. I think that's uh, what the Hugo should to do. everybody. I think so too. Um, Maybe they take nominations and, and then kind of like we do with our charitable voting, like right. we ask people to give us nominations. We sort of come up with a list that we're happy with. We think this is a good list, and then open it up from there. Because like this is mm-hmm. absurd. Like one guy, John Wright, has three nominations in Best Novella. Three of the five are one guy. Sorry, no. I mean, I just, I mean, I guess it's technically possible, but come on. Um, so it's a watershed moment for the Hugo, and it's a watershed moment for how these fandoms that are no longer insular, you know, these are part of wider popular culture now. Um, and, you know, kind of like, it's kind of like being a, you know, a Mac user, just because there's not as many of us, we're not as open to virus attacks, because there's just not as many people, you know, there's not mm-hmm. as many pa- Macs or PCs in the world, so we're not as big of a target. But now sci-fi and fantasy is a big thing. And just like the reason the Avengers are big, there are a lot of people reading sci-fi, paying attention to it. Um, the internet is big and getting reach all the way out there. So you no longer have sort of a, I don't know, almost a, being sort of the last tribe in the Amazon protected from the outside world. The outside world's here. It's on your doorstep. And the old ways of doing things don't work when the whole internet is paying attention. Right. And when the whole internet can buy their way into the yeah, process. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if it'd be better or worse if you just got rid of the $40 fee. I'm Ugh. not sure about that. Yeah, I don't know either. It's um, interesting. When you have a small group know, I, and a poll tax and I kind of suspect it would be worse because then you'd have like I think like more trolls than who maybe aren't going to spend just like $40. a 4chan flood could come right. rolling in. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh so man, we have so much left to talk about. I know, Jeff. I know we better do um, another sponsor. Yeah, Where we got to go to. What day is we it? are <laughs> right. Uh, it's a cold, bright day in April. Oh, it is. It? Well, it's cold here, at least. The clocks yeah. are striking ringing thirteen. 13. Um, striking thirteen. So Scribd is our sponsor again this week. The good folks at Scribd are back. Uh, we've been talking about subscription services on this episode, and if you have been thinking about trying one and you want to know what that is all about, this is a good day for you, my friend, uh, because Scribd is a subscription book service that gives you unlimited access to a library of more than half a million, which is a lot, ebooks, audiobooks, and comics. Uh, you go to Scribd, S-C-R-I-B-D dot com slash book riot to get started. You'll get a whole month free. You can try so many books in a month. So many. And a thing that we talk about with subscription services all the time is how much we love that they open up the door for you to try whatever you want to try with no risk and no friction. Uh, So you've never read a comic and you're not sure that you like you don't know which comic shop to go to. You don't know which comic you want to read. You can just poke around on Scribd and see what looks interesting and give it a shot. And if you love it, you can binge read because they have a cool button that you press to binge read. and if you don't love it, then you just close it and you try something else and you're not out any additional dollars from your mm-hmm. experiment. It's a great way to diversify your reading life in all the possible directions that you can diversify your reading life at really low risk. Uh, they have books in Scribd from a lot of the major houses like our pals at HarperCollins, um, Simon & Schuster, HMH, also innovative small presses like McSweeney's and CounterPoint and Tin House. Um, with the subscription, uh, not just the half a million ebooks and audiobooks, they have, um, sorry, half a million ebooks, 30,000 audiobooks, a ton of comics. I don't think I've seen a number there yet, but there are 
bunch. Ton. There's some Daredevil I saw recently. There's a bunch on there. Yeah, they have curated lists that are made by their team of editors, and it tailors recommendations based on how you rate the books. So if you're pulling a Salman Rushdie and uh, giving things low or high ratings, the Scribd algorithm is looking at that, and they recommend based on what you like and what you didn't like. It, it tailors in both directions. Uh, so Scribd.com slash Book Riot right now to get your one month of free access started, 30 days of unlimited reading, listening, and comics digging in. Uh, pretty soon that page will also bear a list of recommendations from us, from books that we've loved. Um, if you're going to try a comic, my favorite thing in the world, Lumberjanes, is on Scribd right now. It's about a, a group of girls at a summer camp, and there's mythology and feminist references and some magic, and it's just so, so much fun. Uh, it's great whether you are, like, uh, whether you're looking for a kid or for an adult. It's kind of a readers of all ages thing, um, but with lots of winking jokes for mm. the adult readers. Uh, and a a really great funny memoir slash like I don't even know how to pitch this book um, but Baratunde Thurston has a book out called How to Be Black mm -hmm. that came out a few years ago that's a memoir of you know about growing up black in American culture and he's a cultural figure so also kind of what that is like um, but how do you understand uh, the black experience if you are a person who's not black? And then how we talk about race and racial our experiences as people of different races in American culture. It's smart. It's really funny. Uh, I thought it was a lot of fun. And that's available in Scribd as well. So those are two nice appetizers to get you started. Thanks again. Thanks again. Uh, to Scribd for sponsoring. And when you go to Scribd.com slash Book Riot to get your 30-day free trial, it also lets them know that you came from us. Uh, so hopefully they will continue to sponsor. We can keep doing this thing. Uh, and if you're in there and you need any recommendations, you can always holler at us on Twitter or let us know what you've been reading on Scribd and we'll give you uh, some other places to go. Vida. 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 Uh, which week. in any normal week would be the big story. I guess maybe it still is the our big story of the week, really. Um, there's just so much else that's interesting. The 2014 Vita count came out this week. Vita, which is um, an organization which promotes the promotes women in literary arts, basically. Mm -hmm. And their big annual project is a count, which we've talked about on the show. We talk about every time it comes out. I always look forward to it um, with, with both interest and dread. Uh, and basically what they do is they pick some influential literary publications – and they look to see how many women are represented as reviewers and how many women are represented as having getting their book reviewed. Uh, and it's never great. Um, it has shown improvement over the years. Um, mm -hmm. Some notable improvements again, of, among some of the publications that really seem to care, Tin House being one of them. The New York Times Book Review has never said openly that they're actively trying to do or pay attention to Vita, but the numbers suggest that if they're not, they're doing a heck of a job anyway. Um, and then there's a, the, the, the annual laggards that continue to be laggards. Mm -hmm. um, basically, if you have a review of books in the name of your publication, you suck with women. Because the New York, New York Review of Books, the London Review of Books are just horribly, horribly dude heavy. And um, the Times Literary yeah, Supplement. Yeah, Engl the English ones, the English publications come out looking terrible here, especially as a group. Um, the ones that perform relatively better, Boston Review has made a concerted effort, I believe, as well. Granta, it, yes, Poetry 71%. Magazine, 71%. Um, let's see, what else? Uh, the, as I said, the NYTBR uh, comes out looking pretty good. Tin House. I, you know, 
McSweeney's made a big jump. They had 23%. Um, oh, that is. Women. That's right. Yeah. So the Vita numbers, and we'll put all the links in the show notes. Um, you can look at breakdowns by uh the gender of the reviewers and breakdowns by the gender of the authors whose books were reviewed and a few other variables for each publication. But then they, they call there's one that's like the master graph for each publication, which mm-hmm. Vita talks about that as a pie, but they're not pie charts this year. Um, but last year, McSweeney's women only had 23% of the pie. And this year, women got 48% that's a, that's of a the pie. That's a statistically so significant jump. It is. It's a really big jump. So across um, being reviewers or having their books reviewed or a few of the other ones. Um, um, what else? Oh, in the other direction, the ninth letter, which I think is a um, literary is journal. Uh, it's I, this is under the not great Bob section of my notes about it, but they had a big negative change down from sixty two percent to thirty four percent. The Times uh, Literary Supplement is holding steady. That's with, the worst um, one, isn't it? It is the worst one. Yeah. Um, that's the stinker. Twenty seven percent women have had twenty seven percent of the pie in coverage pretty steadily for the last four years that Vita has been doing this count. But like you said, the Boston Review is at seventy one percent this yeah. year. Uh, you don't get there by accident. Doesn't Those people. Seem- to me, most of the attention. most of the graphs are showing steady, small year over year improvements, except for the stinkers. You know, and the Nation, Vita, TLS, right. NYRB. Those ones when, just sort of suck. Actually, NYRB is a little better this year. Uh, just a yeah, little bit better. I'm sorry, a I little should, bit. Yeah, yeah, a little bit better. Uh, when Vita launched. They said, and what they've continued to say is that the first part of their mission is just to bring these numbers to visibility, um, to point out here is what publications that yep. are perceived as important and or powerful or prestigious in the literary world, here is how those publications are doing with respect to women. These are the actual numbers, uh, which is incredibly useful. Oh. In conversations with people who are like, well, where's your proof that sexism (laughs) is a problem? Okay, buddy, would you like to see my pie chart? Yeah, (laughs) this is, I mean, Um, I don't know what else you want. But sort of one of the principles of causing change in anything, whether it's your personal life or an industry that you're a part of or your work or your family, is first you turn attention to that thing. Or you measure, you get some sort of stat, right? Yeah, you turn your attention. You watch the thing. Um, it's kind of the same thing, I think, as how like if you keep a journal of if you're trying to lose weight or yes. get healthier, and you keep a journal of what you eat and how frequently you move your like body. Just budgeting too it. is famous for right. that. If you just write down how much you want to save and how much you actually save, you actually end up saving more. Right. Just the simple act of turning attention to measuring a thing can cause change or can be the catalyst for change. And so while like the New York Times book review, as you were saying, hasn't come right out and said that this is a thing they're working on, having those numbers be public and knowing that the public of industry publications, you know, of and the literary internet are paying attention, Mm -hmm. uh, likely is causing some conversations behind the scenes or someone is paying more attention. We're talking about it. People are thinking about it. We get notes all the time. So like, as you guys have talked about it, I pay more attention and blah, blah, blah. And this helps us, you know, gives us something to glad. Right. uh, You have, you have real numbers. It gives people something to pay attention to. And, you know, there's a piece of it that like sort of always comes out around the Vita numbers of like, whether these publications are really important or not, Mm. or whether they're really representative of publishing or not. And I think you and I share the opinion that 
sort of where the power is in like the wider reading community and in who's talking about yeah. books and how we talk about them has shifted and is continuing to shift. But I think that Vita is smart to do it this way because publishing is slow to change right. and publishing still very much thinks that a small group of elite publications are the ones that matter. Yeah. And so if you're going to cause change, you point out the problems in the places that the industry has already decided matters and you work on those and let, you know, other groups and other publications do what they're doing to create their own change too. But I think it's important to point out like the New York Times is the publication of record yeah. for publishing. And so we should look at who gets coverage there and how. Yeah, because like some people asked us, um, actually people asked me on Twitter specifically, I don't know if they asked you, like, why, you mm. know, why is a book right on this or other uh. kinds of sites, BuzzFeed or the millions or, you know, online only places. And said, well, I think it's sort of not the point. You know, it, it doesn't really matter what individual publications you pick. Probably the only one I'd say you have to do if you want to do this is the NY the New York Times, mm, mm-hmm. everything else you could kind of throw in a bucket. You know, the Washington Post isn't on here, which it easily right. could be, sure. or the LA Times or anything like that. But, you know, it could be because like, I think, you know, maybe I'm hubristic, but I think probably in aggregate, we're as influential as say the Boston Review, I would think. So it's not really about influence in a, in a sort of selling book sort of sense, but it's or more- Or like absolute influence. Yeah, absolute influence. Perceived yeah, yeah. literary eliteness, um, also, maybe. Also, good luck doing the Vita count on Book Riot. I don't <laughs> even know how you would do it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we were talking, like we'd have to figure out the counting system and then enter it in every day as we went like for a buy, year. Like every borrow bypass or genre kryptonite and every- best books we read this month or what I'm reading. Like, I don't even mm-hmm. know how you, because we don't really well, do we, reviews, but we talk about books yeah. a lot. So it's a but very But we do, we thing. are keeping stats about, um, we are keeping stats about the, what shows up in the best yeah, books Amanda we read this that. month. Yeah. And a few, I think a few of the other recurring. So we, we're keeping stats and we'll do our own count but at the end of the year. But it's not definitive by any sort right. of what we cover. <laughs> right. So that's it's one thing that's selection. interesting to think about. Um, too, is that this is not everybody. So, you know, this is, Vita is going to continue to do this. I think it continues to be an important piece. The mm-hmm. new piece this year is they did oh, a buddy. Women of Color. So they they sort of, it's sort of, we've been wondering about this too and openly asked, not in a, not in a you should be doing this way, but as boy, it would, it, it would be good, it'd be interesting to know mm-hmm. the racial and ethnic diversity of the women that are writing. And oh my God. It's so bad. It's um, so worse. It is worse than I thought. I think the methodology I was at is, is worse than like, I thought. It is. It's uh, the methodology the is really not interesting. Their methodology, so I want to like not Vita. Like the the results are. Yeah, yeah. The methodology is great. It's yeah. really interesting um, how they did this. Um, rather than just looking at the women's names that were published in these fifteen publications that they count and like googling and trying to figure out what race they were and and having the vita people assign a race uh, a racial identity to each writer for the purposes of the count um they went the route of self-identification yeah. and they said um it's a great quote uh, we are not qualified to determine and assign race to any writer of the more than 2000 in the 12 publications um that we've traditionally Counted. They wanted those writers to have the power um, and the control over how they identified and to respect that. So they reached out to the publications in the count um, and went through editors. And sometimes they emailed the writers directly. They had this master spreadsheet of all the women that were featured in these publications that they count. And they went through multiple rounds of trying to reach them. They sent a survey to them asking them to self-identify their race. And they got responses from more than 45 
or from 45 self-identified categories, mm-hmm. uh, which is fascinating in itself. Um, and then they broke it out that way. Um, so, But the charts are, despite the fact that people from more than 45 self-identified categories responded, the charts are basically like, here is a, here are the bajillion people who identified yeah. as white. And then there were like three women from this publication that identified themselves as Asian and one person that identified as black. It's, um, it, it's so for context, we've used this number sort of internally, both to check our own sort of diversity and where we want to be eventually. And we're ahead of most, all of these places, but in, in, the number we keep coming back to is around 33 to 36% of Americans are people of color. So that's that gives you some sense of what the actual distribution of humans in America are. And not all of these are, you know, some of these are British. So if you're trying to get a sense, because we're going to give you some of these numbers, and I just want you to have context for how bad they are. Right. So, you know, these are just the women. So already underrepresented in literary, literary these journals, right? Already, already underrepresented. Mm-hmm. Well, do you start with the worst? How about let's start with the best? Okay. Tell me what the best is, Jeff. God, I don't even know. <laughs> what What is the best? In terms of percentage? You- well, I mean, I don't even know what to make of this. So like Granta, they, there's nine respondents for the women of Granta writing, and mm-hmm. six of them are white, one Hispanic, one black, one Asian. And that's okay. good as a percentage because mm-hmm. that's like three right, of that's nine, like, 33%. Right? So, right, so that's, 30, yeah. you know, that's good. That's where you mm-hmm. want to be. But it's also such a small sample size. Let's go with something with a big sample size. How about, oh, I don't know. Well, let's go with a big boy. Let's go to the New York Times Book Review. Where is he? Okay. Where is he, tellingly? New York. No, that's New York Review of Books. Let's yeah, not even look it's right at that. below that. New York Times Book Review. Okay. So 158 There's... white women. Mm-hmm. Um. These bar graphs, like if you're listening to the yeah. show, click on the link in the show notes when you get a chance and look at these bar graphs. It looks it's like so if you stark. if you ju- drop the Empire State Building into Dubuque, Iowa, is what it these really bar graphs look like. So 158 eight white women, white women, 16 Asians. who identified as Asian, yeah. eight who identified as Black or African American, yes. three Hispanic. as Hispanic or Latina, two unsure. identified, yeah, as unsure. And two identified just as woman of color. So 24, 27, 29, 29 mm-hmm. out of a total of 180. Yeah. <sighs> oh, boy. It's about a third of what a, a, a representative representation would be. And this is not mm-hmm. even the worst one. This is not even that bad compared to some of the others. <sighs> Let's look at our it's, good friends over at the New York Review of Books. Oh, the New York Review of Books is so... 26 white women it's and so one Asian. And that's it. Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry. Two women who only identify. So three out of 30, 10%. 10%. Mm-hmm. Uh, where else are we going to go? Oh, The New Yorker. Let's look at that. Yeah, The New Yorker is not great 56 either. white women, uh, two Asians, three black African-American, two Hispanic, Latino, four other. Mm-hmm. And The New Yorker, it's worth mentioning. On the main Vita, like it looks pretty consistent- good. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Am I wrong? On the main Vita, it's pretty, like, the New Yorker, it's pretty bad. There's not much change. um, And that's what I was looking for when I was looking at the the primary count, 
was who's in, not just where are they standing in absolute coverage yes. of uh, men versus women, but how are they changing? And there's like no change mm. in this New Yorker graph over the last four years. There, um, it's like very tall skyscrapers versus middling buildings. There's almost twice as many men on every year than there are women. Like, and this year it was 563 male writers and 280 female writers, and that's about the same proportion um, as the last four years. So they're just not even, it's just, they don't care. I mean, I don't even know how we say it like over and over. If you, if you consistently have numbers like this, you're either not paying attention at all, or you're seeing your numbers and you don't care about them. Um, Cause if you do care, you take steps to not have this problem. The Atlantic 21 white women, women, three Asian women, one black African American. Mm -hmm. One thing when we were talking about it behind the scenes that, um, we both thought was interesting is that in terms of the absolute numbers in the population, in the U S population, um, there are more Asian women. Oh yes. Represented in these publications relative to the presence of Asian women in the Mm -hmm. American population um, and that black women are underrepresented. Way underrepresented. Hispanic women are even worse here. mm -hmm. Uh, Hispanic Latino women, especially. So I guess now this is this is the ground zero. Hopefully this is the worst this count ever looks like. And Vita, you know, makes a lot of notes about how, of course, this count is incomplete. We yep. weren't able to reach all of the women mm-hmm. from all of the publications. This is a starting point uh, and that they'll be refining their methodology over the coming years and that they also hope to be able to roll out surveys and analysis of other demog- like other key demographic questions um, in addition to gender and race um, or to be able to make more granular analysis of them. It's And there's a lot of reasons. There's a lot of reasons for this. Um, Institutionalized bias is, you know, principle among them, but that takes a lot of forms. One of the forms is women not feeling welcome. Women of color not feeling like they're going to be published or taken seriously or Mm -hmm. they haven't gotten enough social signals that they have the goods, or, if that makes sense. You, you know, I think we both have friends who work in publishing houses that have said, that have stories about being in meetings where it's not quite said out loud, but everyone knows that what's being said is like, well, we already have a black woman on this season's list. Like we can only do one book by a black woman each season. And that slot's mm, already taken. We have heard that. Yeah. Um, that Those kinds of things are, are happening. And in, in, so that's the institutionalized... Um, side of it or institutional side of it. But the way that publications reach out to Mm -hmm. writers, like what you're saying, if if women of color are consistently rejected from things at some point, they or they don't see women of color published in these things. So like, why should I even try? Right. And so they don't feel welcome. And like one of the things that Tin House talked about doing was not just relying on what came into the pitch inbox or what showed up in the slush pile, but actively going out and inviting women and women of color to submit things for their site uh, or for their publication. Um, Websites are doing that. We do it explicitly in our call for applications. We should say we're um, we're currently in an open call for applications. For contributors, Um, yeah, I think by the time this show drops, we'll be on like the last couple days of the call. Yeah, until April nineteenth, something like um, that. But you know, we have a lot of women writing for the site. We have a lot of people of color. More, not as many as we'd like to be. It should be said, Um, Um, we're not at that thirty-five percent number, but we're trying to get there. 
we are trying to get there. And one of the things that we're doing in trying to get there is explicitly saying, uh, we hope when you see Book Riot that you see people who look like you and you feel welcome to apply. But just in case you haven't seen it, you are welcome here and we want to read We've also gone outside of our normal open calls to recruit people mm-hmm. of color. We have. And it's, you know, that's part of what it takes if you care and about this. And it works. Yeah, it, do, it does work. <laughs> it does work. Um, so, yeah, it's it's, it's disappointing, yeah, but this, not surprising, which makes it somehow right. more disappointing. Yeah, not it's not surprising at all how bad these numbers no. are. And and I'm even disappointed. You're like, it's, I don't know, the, the regular count, just the presence of women count, is good that it's, you know, that we're seeing some consistent no. improvement. Uh, but most of the numbers or a lot of the numbers are still not approaching parity, or there's yeah. still several years of improvement away from approaching parity. Like the the write-up on Vita applauds the New Republic for the percentage jump that they mm-hmm. made in the last year, but it just, that jump just got them to 29% coverage of women. Yeah. Oh, uh, it's, <laughs> like it does. I do j- wonder if there's like, People paying attention will lift the tide somewhat, but there's still a, you know, there's still friction at some oh, level. Oh, I'm sure there's you know, still there's friction. there's where that still is going to be. Mm-hmm. And that'll be the harder thing. That's the thing that just measuring doesn't break you through. Right. Like if you want to save money, you can do all the, I want to save money and try. But if you only make so much money, yeah. it's hard to save enough for retirement, for example. Like there are other things that are going to need to change. And I don't know what they mean. I, I have some of my doubts that some of these longstanding institutions are even capable of parity. Uh, mm-hmm. Or getting even, you know, within a statistical error of parity. I, I mean, I think it would be like looking at the nation. Um, yeah. There's a really wide gap of particularly the genders of the authors that are reviewed. Mm-hmm. I think it was only like 20% uh, were of the 20% of the books reviewed last year were by women. And that's the kind of thing that takes like. And you bring in a new editor and yes. that new editor cleans house. And maybe gets a 35%, you know, like to double is going to be hard. <laughs> like, are they like clean house and get a whole new staff and roll in? Like, this is the way well, that we do things now. that's what the New Republic did. Now? Yeah. That's what the New Republic did. You know, one thing you can do is something like BuzzFeed is doing. Did you? Uh, oh, see, come on. Good come job on. there. BuzzFeed um, is starting a couple of new projects. They've they've had a book section for you know, almost two years uh, now. I want to yeah, say yeah, year or two, year mm-hmm. two. Um, uh, with Isaac Fitzgerald as the book editor over there, um, previously of the Rumpus, um, and Saeed Jones, who has been editing their LGBTQ vertical. I may have mm-hmm. gotten those numbers. And the, he he's a poet. He has a yeah, great really book out cool called, guy, Saeed Jones. Uh, Prelude is to their the new news. literary editor, and they're starting a couple interesting things. Um, one is a, um, I, I guess, a literary magazine of some kind that's going to come mm-hmm. out next year, and it doesn't say if it's print only or digital only or what it's going to be. Yeah, but there, short fiction, uh, poetry, and lyric essays. That sounds like a pretty typical literary journal in terms of mm-hmm. format. Um, but the other thing that Saeed and this new literary part of BuzzFeed is explicitly interested in is diversity of yeah. a bunch of different kinds. And part of that is they're going to be doing a new fellowship program uh, in which they're going to have, let's see, a four-month fellowship um, that's 12, 12 grand. Mm-hmm. Basically, and they're going to have uh, several of them available, um, so you can come and work on your whatever your literary whatever. Uh, and I don't. 
It's cool. I mean, this is good, right? I it mean, is this cool. is if yeah, one thing that helps with diversity is giving people support that don't have another, you know, that aren't right. conventionally have access to, to standard right. ways the, of support. Yeah, the Emerging Writer Fellowship uh, is what it's called. And they're launching it uh, in, well, they're launching the magazine in March of 2016. It doesn't quite say yeah. uh, when the fellowships will be launched. I'm certain they're going to be overwhelmed with applications for it. But this is this is very cool. I think it's a large publication on the web, like BuzzFeed for whatever you think of their content. Um, I think Isaac has done a great job with the books vertical. Um, they're huge. They understand how the social internet works uh, and how to get the word out about things. There's been some great, there have been some great long form essays about diversity in publishing, about real serious issues in publishing and BuzzFeed's platform is enormous. And I'm happy to see them giving their enormous platform over to talking about these big issues. Um, and Saeed is so smart and so well-respected. And this is, I think it's very cool. I, I like, I trust this, you know, like sometimes people roll out new projects and you're a little bit like, oh, how is this? Like, it's a good idea, but how's it going to go with this person? I feel like he's the absolute perfect person to be doing this for BuzzFeed. And it's going to be cool to see uh, emerging writers have an opportunity to spend time just working on their writing and, and having financial support mm. for doing that um, when otherwise they you know, would be having to pay their bills in some other way and might not be able to focus on their writing. There's been a lot of historical, you know, like privilege built into who gets to work in publishing and who gets published. Um, Publishing has been built on unpaid internships for a long time. And there's this like storied, well-known history of one of the ways that you could afford to take an unpaid internship to get your foot in the door at like Random House was, you know, if you had a trust fund or parents who could pay for you and float mm. your bills for you for a few years so that you could do or a job you that at would least get didn't you have into any the college industry. Debt to also yeah. serve as and well or something yeah, like that. If you're coming out of school with a lot of debt or you're coming from, you know, a less well-off financial situation, which very few people have that situation of the the trust fund and no debt at all and parents that can pay for you, you know, for a couple of years. Um, this gives opportunity to people who wouldn't normally have it. I, was I think also that's great. thinking about this. As New York has gotten exponentially more expensive just since we moved here 10, well, 15 years ago now for me, it's even harder, I would think. You know, I mean, it, this is not the same city I moved to in 2000, which was still expensive even then. But, you know, it's exp- if you're getting paid $33,000 a year, I don't know where you li- – I literally don't know where you live in New York uh, for that much money, you know, I, without mm-hmm. subsidies, subsidized housing or a family support system or other outside money. It's just it – just, it's crazy. So – it's interesting. I'm going to be interested to say that it's, I guess the, the most interesting thing for me is that BuzzFeed is doing this at all. Yeah. It's interesting that it's BuzzFeed. Yeah. Right? right. I mean, they've been great about diversity in their own internal hiring. Like they have a really interesting diverse editorial staff, at least on the culture stuff that I follow. I don't know how mm-hmm. the, the, the other stuff is, but so that it's clear that the, someone over there is, is uh, paying attention. Um, but I don't know why they want to do a literary journal. Like, why are they doing fellowships? Like, it's not, it, it's it's great, but I guess I just – I'm not sure why. They're yeah. like a huge you, digital startup. They've got like $100 million in funding. They do billions of pages a month. Like, I, I guess I'm just not sure. It's that, – that piece of it is really curious. Like, 
I'm not saying it's wrong or anything. I just don't get it. No, but it's it's interesting. Like they're huge. BuzzFeed is getting like exclusive access to big names. President Obama does selfies for BuzzFeed on video. (laughs) <laughs> right. Or and like just within publishing, yeah. like, you know, publishers have given BuzzFeed exclusive access to big authors. Yep. They've done reveals of like book related. John Green's come videos. to their office to do videos. Yeah, they're, like, they're getting like whether whether or not publishing likes BuzzFeed's way of doing content or talking about books, which I kind of suspect publishing might not like because BuzzFeed is so... Yeah, like it's, we're similar to BuzzFeed in that way of like it's you know it's casual and it's celebratory yeah. and it's enthusiastic and it's not it can about be goofy being and random yeah, and whatever, right. Yeah. There's gifts like it's not about being a, a highbrow or a literary reader. BuzzFeed wants everybody in the door, um, but that doesn't seem to matter. Like what, what publishing thinks of BuzzFeed's content doesn't seem to matter because BuzzFeed's audience is so big. Yeah, when you have that, that many eyeballs, yeah, they huge. want access to those eyeballs. And so they're giving BuzzFeed stuff. Like you don't, if you're as big as BuzzFeed is, you don't have to have literary bona fides. Yes. Um, well, and John looks, Green is like, he's a pop culture person now. And, yeah, you know, like some of these things are like, exceed what we consider. Yeah, publishing. the literary journal thing to me, like looked like a bid toward getting some literary bona fides and being taken seriously. I guess to why um, I think I mean, you're right Isaac's, about that, but why do they care? I, I get, that's, that's I so mean, interesting to me. Well, I, I mean, it's, I think that's just down to the people that are participating. You know, the, the rumpus was very literary. Isaac Fitzgerald has that background of, you know, yeah. publishing literary essays and, and being one of the first people to have Cheryl Strayed's voice out in the world at the rumpus. So that's the thing he cares about. Yeah. Saeed is Roxanne a poet and, an, the rumpus, yeah, and an excellent literary writer. So this is, uh, I think these people who run Buzzfeed books and the, the literary vertical care very much about literary community. And, um, and Saeed is working on this fellowship to expand who we think of as members of the literary community and to have wider voices there. But it is interesting. Like why does a, I don't know. And my bias is that I don't really care about literary journals at yeah, all. Me neither, so really. I'm surprised. I'm surprised any time that like when we have the internet, someone but thinks Isaac that and Saeed a are way journal more literary is the way to than go. you and I are. Like they oh, come yeah, from, yeah, yeah. you know, like, they have, I don't know that. Right. I mean, they but write like, and but, they've but done like poetry and stuff like yeah. that. Like that's not something we do. Like we have of. the internet now to, and maybe yeah. the journal that they're doing is going to be an online journal, which would basically make it just a small site that publishes right. things rather than a print journal. And I could get my head around that more. Like here's the digital platform where we publish literary things and Buzzfeed backs that. Yeah. And maybe they use Buzzfeed's giant platform to point eyeballs at essays by literary writers that wouldn't get as many eyeballs if they were somewhere else, which that's great. Like that's a cool way to, you know, point some attention at a more diverse group of writers. But yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, maybe if you have $100 million in VC funding and you make $70 million a year, I mean, that's what BuzzFeed does. Maybe throwing, you know, 150 grand at a Saeed passion project is, you know, and see what happens. Yeah. It's not like a mission, you know, they're not taking the future of BuzzFeed on right. it. So like, <laughs> right. maybe in that I'm overthinking it. It's not a huge it. gamble to take, but it is, in- it's just not the kind of thing that we expect from BuzzFeed. Yeah. Um, yeah. So anyway, that's interesting. We're going to pay attention to that. We got to wrap. What are we doing? We, we got to get out we gotta of here. Do, well, yeah, we got to do our last sponsor. Oh, yes, we got some yes. new Random books, and I'll talk really fast. Um, go to tryoutbooks.com, and Random House Audiobooks is this cool site, tryoutbooks.com, where they recommend 
audiobooks for you based on uh, what kind of books you like. And what activities you're doing. Oh, I'm doing. sorry. What kind of activities you're doing. And also what kind of books you like. You can figure mm-hmm. out some of that there too. So the thing they're, they're, they're pointing us to this year, because it's spring. I mean, I keep telling New York it's spring, man. And it's 35 degrees and raining here, but whatever. <laughs> I'm, I hear other places there's this thing called spring happening. I was on a beach this no, weekend. No, <laughs> that's not okay. Don't come. Why do you do that to me? Um, so you can go to random trialbooks.com slash gardening and they give you some gardening picks there. But they mm-hmm. also, if you check it out too, they're for crafting, road trips, uh, you know, commuting, a whole bunch of things along those lines. We can try different, you know, different levels of heaviness, I guess you would say, different mm-hmm. levels of different lengths and things like that. Um, man, I tell you what, I just, uh, I just was starting to, I'm starting to hear a girl on the train. Uh-huh. Have you read it? Yeah, I read okay. it. Okay. Enough, it, it became like a thing, and now I'm hearing from people I trust that it's a thing. So I don't know. I'm not going to put you on the spot right now, but I'm, I'm circling that one. I'm I'll, wonder- tell you, I'll, I'll tell you later. Tell me later your, your review. Um, but that's one I'm really looking at uh, to, to look at. I and mean, that's apparently a bit of a thriller. It's a page turner. We still don't have a good word for a page turner for an audiobook, right? Um, mm. So that's something we're still working on, too. Um, it's like miss your train stop compelling. You know, one thing uh, that I, I've sort of suggested some other ways that people could use audiobooks to sort mm-hmm. of fill out their uh, their their lives. And I said video games and uh, a bunch of other wonderful, smart ideas because, well, think, because of, obviously. think of the source. Um, one, I was, I was uh, regrouting our kitchen floor the other day. <laughs> oh, buddy. But you know what? Audiobook. Mm. You listen to audiobook, regrout your floor. Makes it a little less terrible right there. Mm-hmm. So uh, that, that's another one you might add to your list if you're getting into summer projects uh, along those lines. Uh, let me see. What else can I say? So yeah, you, you could regrout almost everything and listen to an <laughs> audiobook. It could be your shower. Uh, you could regrout your tub, I guess. Um, I'm doing some spring cleaning and there's definitely audiobook action happening. Oh yeah, that's a really good that. idea. Spring, spring cleaning is something you could, probably gardening would be along the same lines if you want to <laughs> yep. do that as well. Um, so anyway, I, there's a lot of interesting things you can uh, listen to while you're listening to some audiobooks. So go to trialbooks.com and get started uh, right now, right now. Okay, tell me All about right. some books. New books, new books. Okay, good stuff this week. Uh, the first is a big YA book, maybe one of the more anticipated ones of the year, if the Book Riot contributor core is any uh, is any measure. Simon versus the Homo Sapiens Agenda by Becky Albertalli. Uh, it's about a kid named Simon who's 16. He's gay. He is not totally out yet. Uh, but an email that he sends gets into the wrong hands uh, somehow, teenagers being teenagers, and he's being blackmailed by a kid at his school, uh, a mean kid that if he doesn't do what this kid wants him to do, the kid is threatening to out him. And so he he then, you know, won't have control of how he reveals his identity to his peers. Uh, 
that sounds like a super compelling setup to me. Uh, Kelly Jensen, who works with us and is our resident YA queen of everything, uh, has been recommending it widely. People have just been like popping up on Twitter to tell me how great this book is and to make sure that I've heard of it. Um, I have heard of it. I'm super excited to read it. And that's out this week. Also mm. looks like a great thing to be taking into the summer uh, if you're looking to you know diversify your YA reading in any way. A great story about uh, a kid from the LGBT community. Is that's one of them, or if you're looking for good recommendations for teens in your life that care about uh, identity and issues like that, and there you go. Simon versus the Homo Sapiens Agenda. It also just has a really great cover. I think that's a fun title. Like everything about the package of this book is appealing to me. Uh, also out is Orhan's Inheritance by Eileen Ohanesian. Uh, this is a story that is. Oh wait, I lost my notes. This no, is a sad. sad. Day. Uh, okay. So Orhan's brilliant and eccentric grandfather who built a dynasty out of making rugs is found dead in a vat of dye and Orhan inherits the family business. Um, but his grandfather's will raises a lot of questions as well. Uh, they left the family estate to a stranger thousands mm. of miles away, this woman who's in a retirement home in Los Angeles, and uh, her existence and the secrecy about her past deepen the mystery of why Orhan's grandfather would have done this. Um, so in, intent on writing this, uh, uh, you know, writing the wrong, uh, Orhan goes to LA and has meetings with this 87-year-old woman to unearth a family secret. Um, and in the process, the story digs into the history of uh, Turks and Armenians and a conflict that dates back to um, the Ottoman Empire. So you've got history and family secrets and scandal uh, and a part of history uh, and a cultural conflict that uh, that I don't know very much about. So I'm looking mm. forward to reading this and getting that as well. That's from Algonquin Books. Um, they're doing some of the most interesting and most diverse titles that, that I've seen. Like uh, one thing that I've been paying attention to this year is how diverse the books I get in the mail are. Mm -hmm. um, and they are not very, but uh, Algonquin is doing a consistently great, interesting job. Um, and Chris Bojalian, who's a, an author and a friend of the site, blurbed this one. And I trust that as well. So great reviews, hearing good buzz about Orhan's Inheritance. Uh, and out in paperback this week is a book that I love that I feel like I've been talking about a ton lately on the show. Um, Daring Greatly, How the Courage to be Vulnerable Transforms the Way We Live, Love, Parent, and Lead by Brene Brown. Um, she's got some great TED Talks. Uh, she's a sociologist who spent her life studying how um, how we how vulnerability works, basically, and uh, what happens when we take the risk to be vulnerable, to show ourselves to people around us, to reveal our weaknesses in some way, and how ultimately taking that risk makes us stronger and better um, in our relationships with friends and family and coworkers. Um, it affected every, it, it changed my thinking about things, both big and small, in every different kind of relationship in my life. And I think it's a really great book. And it's out in paperback. So nice. it's cheaper now than it used to be. It would also be great on audio. It's from Penguin, but Penguin and Random House, you know, together now. So uh, if you're doing the Penguin, or if you're doing the Random House audiobooks thing, oh, you could try yes. out. Oh, yes. Very good idea. Very good idea. Daring Greatly by Brene Brown. I think that's our that's show. That's our we'll have show. To talk. I am wiped out, man. I am too. This was a big one. Big we still show. had things that we kicked off the agenda. Um, and I still Amanda have more things I... to say about some of the stuff we already covered. <laughs> I feel very, very uh, disheveled. You're going to be off next week. Um, Amanda and I will have to talk about this Maya Angelou stamp thing. Oh, good. I didn't so want to talk about that. <laughs> 
I really didn't want to. Don't forget teespring.com slash brpodcast for your books are in my wheelhouse shirt. Thanks to Squarespace. Use offer code RIOT to get 10% off. Thanks to Script. Go there. Uh, you can try Scribd.com, S-C-R-I-B-D.com slash book riot. Mm-hmm. Yep. And try audiobooks.com slash gardening. All right. Thanks for all sponsoring the show. Thanks so much last week for your great questions. We had a lot of fun doing the show. Got a lot of good feedback uh, about the show. Um, and we'll oh, see yeah. you next Amanda week. and I got our tattoos last oh, night did. for people Oh, who... I was also going to mention, we're going to do a, 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 a summer recommendation show. A mom's, dad's, grad's summer reading. So any, any anything that falls into that, if you want a book recommendation for Mother's Day or Father's Day or someone's graduating from high school or college or for summer or just for yourself, just slide it on there. It doesn't even have to be for one of those things. Um, choose the email podcast at bookriot.com. As always, you can find show notes. Uh, so we'll be taking those questions for the next few weeks and record a show. I think we'll get all three of us back on because that was fun. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, then as always, you can find show notes for this episode and all previous episodes of the Book Riot Podcast at bookriot.com slash podcast. Let's, let's call it a show. Have a good week. <laughs>